0: to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 43. And I'm pleased, but also nervous and excited to be talking today with Dr. Sally Winston, author of this month's book, Overcoming Anticipatory Anxiety, a CBT guide for moving past chronic indecisiveness, avoidance, and catastrophic thinking. Sally is the founder and executive director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute in Baltimore. She's a clinician and author, and we've had her on the podcast before. Um, I think one of the most popular episodes of this podcast is actually Sally's, um, and that was Needing to Know for Sure. So I'm really, really happy to be inviting her back to talk about this book today. So thanks for being here, Sally.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking with you.
0: Great. So you're in Baltimore, right?
1: I'm in Baltimore. Let me just also add that my co-author is Dr. Martin, uh, Dr. Marty Seif, and he is in, uh, he's in Stanford, Connecticut.
0: Cool. Yeah, I've never spoken to him, but I'm sure no less wise in his uh, contributions and offerings to this community. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that.
1: Yeah, we, we always work together when we write. It makes the whole process more fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm not too far from you. I'm actually in D.C. I don't know if you knew that.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah, so maybe one of these days we'll do a live event. <laughs> uh,
1: well, are you coming to the Anxiety Disorders Association Conference, in Anxiety and Depression Association? A-D-A-A dot org.
0: No, when is that coming up?
1: Uh, yeah, it'll be in April.
0: Okay, where is it? In D.C. Oh, well, okay. I'll just uh, walk out my front door then.
1: <laughs> you can walk out your front door. I'm going to drive down and probably about 20 of my folks from my institute will be there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I'll follow up with you about that. That sounds great. So the reason I said I was nervous about having this conversation is because you know, despite having read so many of these books and been in therapy myself for years, I feel like this problem you've identified here, the anticipatory stuff, is a tough nut to crack. And, uh, yeah, personally, I feel like I've got a long way to go in scratching that itch. So, yeah, maybe maybe we can just talk at the top about what it is.
1: Well, anticipatory anxiety is the anxiety you feel in anticipation or expectation of something that's going to be coming up that you expect to cause you anxiety or distress or that you won't be able to handle it or that something bad will happen. So it's not, the, the, it, it's not what you usually think of as, as the fear of the object or the situation. It's the anticipation of it. Um, it is actually something which we call a transdiagnostic phenomenon. In other words, it happens in all different kinds of anxiety problems and obsessive compulsive disorder. It can also happen in depression, but it's about what's coming up. Uh, not the situation you're in. And a lot of times I think people have not separated it out as a separate phenomenon. And yet it is the very last thing to go when you're recovering from, uh, from anxiety or equivalent kinds of problems. We think of it as the third layer of fear. Mm. So there's, there's fear, there's fear of fear, and then there's fear of fear of fear. It's not as bewildering as it sounds. So fear might be, I'm scared of a bee. And fear of fear is, I'm scared if I see a bee, I might have a panic attack and have a heart attack out of such total uncontrollable kind of fear. Anticipatory anxiety is, I'm going camping in three weeks I don't think I can stand the period of time while I'm waiting to go camping in case I might have an encounter with a bee. And the worry that I'm going to have between now and then is probably not worth it. And a very strong part of me wants to cancel the camping trip.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's almost like, and I can certainly resonate with this, when I first moved to D.C. from Florida, renting a one-bedroom apartment was so much more expensive in the city and i i did it anyways in in the area i wanted to live in but i felt anxious about it for maybe a month or two worried mm-hmm. worried that it was too expensive or i couldn't afford it or some rock would fall on my head you know because of a result of this decision which was surely mistaken
1: well, that's the fear of regret, which is part of it. And um, there were probably some avoidances in there. Fear of, the fear of fear of fear really drives avoidance. Mm-hmm. Or it makes the time waiting and getting ready a miserable period of time. And so, uh, you know, and it is it is full of worry and what if.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's so uncomfortable that, like you said, if, especially if the event is not for a while and it's hard to compartmentalize and put it out of your mind, you might just cancel the thing just because you don't want to go through the next two, three, four weeks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well I'm 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 glad that you haven't just diagnosed a problem, but you're offering solutions because it's it seems pretty thorny. And I know from personal experience that it's really difficult.
1: Well for people who have a lot of anxiety, it's it it's um extremely common. Uh, and there are many different kinds of anticipatory anxiety. The most common, I think, is is the kind that, that emerges from your own imagination. And people with anxiety have good imaginations. And the good imagination is great for some things, but it provi- provides anxious people with all kinds of potentially awful scenarios and narratives they create for themselves that start with what if and then go off in all directions. And when you get absorbed into one of your imaginings or one of your your anxious narratives, you can feel like that's reality instead of that that is just something that you made up. Um, And when you're in that, you're making all kinds of uh, mistakes and assumptions about what it means that you're having that narrative be so um, evocative and making you so anxious. If If it's making me this anxious now, then how will it be? right if it's that bad now how could i possibly handle the day before the camping trip or the camping trip itself which is of course one of the things we know about anticipatory anxiety is it's it is usually a liar i mean Mm. it 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 doesn't tell you anything about the future doesn't tell you whether it's going to be good it doesn't tell you whether it's going to be bad it doesn't tell you anything. And so often what happens is when you actually do the thing or confront the situation you've been worrying about, it's, it's not half bad. Uh, it's not what you were expecting.
0: Yeah. I know there's an example in the book of someone who has, a, I think, a fear of flying phobia. And even though they now successfully go on business trips regularly, mm-hmm. that the butterflies up, and, up until leading into the trip days or weeks before um, hadn't subsided yet. Right.
1: So. And, and that's one of, the, one of the things that we know is that there's also a memory-based kind of anticipatory anxiety, which is that if you've had experiences that are difficult, then your, your brain tends to remember those much more vividly than the reality things that are actually going on now. Mm. And so it takes a very long time for those traces, those conditioned responses to subside. And you have to learn how to label them correctly and understand they're not telling you anything. They're just reminding you of something that happened in the past, but they're not telling you anything about the future.
0: So that part, I think, is is a little difficult because for those people who don't experience anxiety regularly, they still will use as, for, as the basis of their decision-making feelings they get. And those mm-hmm. feelings are also not fortune tellers, right? And they're not available to see in the future, but they're allowed somehow. And maybe I've just got sour grapes, but they're allowed to kind of use those feelings to forecast the goodness or badness of a decision. And yet the anxious feelings are like you said, they're, they're lying or or they're inaccurate.
1: Well, and, and it's, it's true that in order to live, you have to make decisions, you have to problem solve, you have to imagine the future, at least to some extent, and come and make a decision. But the the book is really talking to people who get stuck in anticipatory states, and that interferes with their lives. I mean, we all have some anxiety about things. I mean, I don't, don't particularly want to do podcasts. So right before podcasts, I have some anxiety, and I have some thoughts about it. But I've learned to to do the things that I need to do to be able to actually talk with you and proceed. Um, and some of those are are attitudinal shifts, and some of them are perspective shifts. So one of them is to To be able to stand back from the process that you're in and take a look at it to what we call a metacognitive perspective, to be able to label what you're going through, to be able to observe without judgment what you're telling yourself and whether or not it even makes sense or whether or not it's worth all the hassle that you're giving yourself. To be able to stand back and observe and not be absorbed in it. Um, and the second shift is an attitude shift, which is a willingness to be uncomfortable to at least some extent in order to get what you want out of life in order to do things that are novel or challenging or or exciting or or new or just something that is always a little bit of a stressful thing to do but um with without the attitude shift and without the metacognitive perspective. Um, you just uh, you just go round in loops. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Total sense.
0: So, yeah. in order to make an attitudinal shift, h- how can you practice the attitudinal shift on things that? Because you know some of, some of the anticipatory anxiety I know in my case can be overwhelming. So how do you practice the attitudinal shift on things that are less overwhelming? Because it seems like perhaps in that overwhelm zone, uh, a change of, of strategy might not be possible, although you might disagree. I'm not sure.
1: Well, I'm not sure what you mean by overwhelming. Do you mean in the middle of a panic attack? No. <laughs> Within the, with the panic attack, you just kind of have to accept that you're in a time-limited, um, extremely aroused situation that isn't dangerous and will pass on its own if you're not scared of it. So if you're talking about a panic attack, it's really a a similar process of letting time pass, not interfering, just observing, and not adding what we call second fear or the meaning of it. This must mean that I'm inadequate. This must mean that I'm going to fail. This must mean that I can't handle it. Those kinds of things. Um, And so learning to, you know, Learning what panic is and what it isn't is really important. I'm not having a heart attack. It just feels like it, those kinds of things. But if you're talking about smaller, everyday kinds of stuckness, is that, is that what, you're, what you're asking me about?
0: Yeah, maybe not um, everyday situations, but maybe periodic things that come up a few times a year, but seem very big, short, short of a panic attack, but still very large is there a way to practice the attitudinal shift in order to feel, you know, sort of sew your parachute before you jump to feel stronger when those occasions arise or, or does it require, does, I guess what I'm asking is, do you need a lot of willpower in order for this method to work?
1: Well, in fact, willpower is, is um, tricky because, you know, it, it's something we've talked about before. Effort uh, works backwards in the mind you know if, if if you're in the external world and you want to move a table from here to there you you push on it and you put in effort and the table moves but in the in the inside of our minds effort very often works paradoxically backwards and the harder you try to relax the harder you try to make yourself not think something you're thinking the harder you try to not feel something you're feeling the 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 worse it gets, the stronger the impulse to avoid gets and the stronger the feelings and the thoughts. They just come round and round again. So so it's the opposite of willpower. It's what we call willingness, which is to be willing to feel what you're feeling, think what you're thinking, and let it be there without letting it direct you away from what you're trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. So like in the example of someone thinking about going on a camping trip, they're feeling super anxious about it in, in this perspective shift in the willingness to surrender in doing the dance, I think it's the acronym that you mentioned in the That's book, the Acronym, yeah. they would choose something. They would choose either to go or not go and then surrender to whatever feelings come with that. Is that right?
1: Right. You can't be free of the doubts and the, and the worries completely but you can decide that you're going to proceed that's the the last step of the of the dance The first step is to figure out what's happening, discern, Mm -hmm. to to be able to identify the anticipatory anxiety, and in doing so, to recognize that you're making a lot of assumptions, thinking mistakes, imagination, you're responding to conditioning from the past, maybe it's your mood, all kinds of things might be contributing to why you're having the anticipatory anxiety. And you might want to just take a look at that, stand back, get it labeled, and discern what it is. Right. Then you need to avoid avoidance, avoid the struggle, avoid getting involved in a big, entangled argument with yourself about it. Hmm. There's there's nothing as um, nothing that increases anticipatory anxiety more than that debate. You know, the should I go, shouldn't I go debate? Mm -hmm. Sure. I've done that (laughs) before. Right. So that, that decision, oscillating decision back and forth is really keeps your anticipatory anxiety going. That that argument, that entanglement with, with whatever the issue is. So you have to decide that you're going to go, um, or perhaps that you're not going to go, but that's the end of that story. That works immediately. You stop being anxious immediately, but then you don't get your camping trip. So if you decide that you want your camping trip, then you have to make a committed decision to proceed. And in doing so, you have to be willing to let travel through your mind, whatever happens to come up, and take that attitude towards it, that it's that it's not telling you the truth about the future. It's uh, wandering around in your past and your imagination and all kinds of other things like your fear of being anxious and what it might do to you. And then um, and stand back from that. Stay committed to your decision. Stay as much of the time as you can in the present moment and out of the future. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about changing what if to what is. You know, when you find yourself wandering into the future whether the where you're being attacked by a bear in the camping trip, then you simply say, oh, look where I am. I'm in this imagination spot in my head. Come back to the present moment where am I? I'm in my dining room. I'm sitting in a hard chair. Um, I'm looking at a Kleenex box and a fresca can, which is what's happening right here in the moment. And there's no bear. And I'm just going to stay here in the present moment as much as I can. That doesn't work perfectly. You have to be willing to be imperfect about it. But it's about shifting back into your sensory awareness in the present moment instead of in your thinking and imagining Um, part of yourself.
0: Does long-term success with um, healing from anticipatory anxiety require this kind of courage and this kind of attitudinal shift really everywhere? Or can you do it sort of halfway or a quarter of the way, kind of get where you think you need to be for a while and still maintain the avoidance behaviors the experiential avoidance and kind of keep that stuff around or is it like really a whole a whole hog sort of situation
1: well I, I hate to say to people all or nothing about anything right but the fact is what we're talking about is not about a whole series of different thi- different episodes in your life or different things you have to face or one day after another of anticipating this on Monday and that on Tuesday and something else on Wednesday. It's about changing your relationship with your mind. And so you can get there by having this experience a few times, and having what Claire Weeks used to call a glimpse of another way of being, where you are not being bullied or absorbed or taken over by your mind, but you are you're able to see it and stand away from it and not have your mind uh, give you directives that you don't really want. So if if you look at this as a fundamental change in your relationship with your experience, um, then all those different times that you might apply the principles um they they become more natural, otherwise it's sort of an application of a technique, and that it, it will work maybe for that time, but it doesn't it doesn't change um uh, mistakes that you're making, like like believing that if some if a what if pops up into your head that that means you've got to consider it, you mm. know. And if you can understand that what-ifs will show up, but they don't necessarily mean anything important that you have to now solve, just because you imagined it doesn't mean you have to have a plan for it. Um, You'll be there when you get there. If something bad happens, you'll be able to do whatever's needed. But if you can understand the general principles... Then, you're, then, then one thing after another stops being separate things and it becomes a way of living.
0: Yeah, when I was younger, when things used to scare me, I used to just go and do them, um, which I used to think was healthy. And then I realized it was sort of a way of avoiding fear by just sort of plummeting headfirst into a thing that scared me to just do it and get it over with.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of the person who is, uh, who is scared of public speaking and always volunteers to go first mm-hmm. because they don't want to sit there while they're having all the other people, while they're going through more and more and more anxiety because their belief is that that will build in their anxiety and it'll make it a worse experience than just getting it over with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but that means that you're still afraid of your anxiety. Right. And and if you allow yourself to sit there and be anxious and go ahead at the end of the line, then you learn something. And then that that helps you to change that larger picture of just because I imagined it doesn't mean it's going to happen or that it's true or that I wouldn't be able to handle it if it it did happen or that um, being anxious before I give a talk means that I will freeze and won't be able to say anything.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that white knuckling your way from anxious situation to anxious situation will not cure you of anticipatory anxiety.
1: That, that's absolutely correct. Um, and that that'll, it will get you through whatever it is you need to do. And if you need to, you know, have an MRI... Um, and that needs to be tomorrow, and you don't know anything about how to handle it, hey, it's fine to have a PRN medication and, um, you know, and white knuckle your way through and get your MRI. Um, But if you're actually trying to, um, to do something more profound over a longer period of time that applies across the board, then this sort of the learning how to surrender in this therapeutic way and not get get into these arguments with yourself, not white knuckle, not force, not count the moments until it's over, that will do you that will be a better way of handling it.
0: Yeah, something I've noticed when I'm feeling very anxious about a decision is um, I'll get this sort of mental filter which I think you use some different phrases in the book to describe it. But all the positive things that I associated with the accomplishment of this decision in the run-up to it are now gone. Mm-hmm. They're all gone. And what's left is just all the, cat- all the catastrophes and all the negative. And in those moments, it's very persuasive. It's like, where did all the good stuff go? <laughs> Obviously, this is the wrong thing to do. Well so,
1: yes anticipatory thinking is full of all kinds of um confusions and and thinking mistakes and one of them is that when you become anxious uh, no risk seems reasonable even though we all take little little risks and reasonable risks all the time every day suddenly no risk whatsoever seems reasonable if something is possible it feels likely mm mm-hmm. And so um, our memories of things that went wrong or, th- or our beliefs about something that could go wrong or some irrelevant fact about somebody else had it go wrong years ago because you read it in the paper, all of those things suddenly come to the foreground and your own um, reasonable, rational, common sense um, is out the window. And, and that's part of understanding that in that discern moment, in that where you're trying to see what is actually going on here, you can see that you have a selective attention to threat when you're in an anxious state, which means you pay attention to anything that feels threatening, and the whole rest of it all drops out. That's completely typical. But if you know that, and you can remind yourself of that, that the feelings that you're having are, are feelings they're not facts, they're not mm-hmm. predictions, they're not warnings, they're not signals, this is a natural process when you're anxious, then you can be skeptical about that. And you can try to find your own common sense.
0: Yeah, it, it strikes me because this has happened to me many times. And, you know, I'm a meditator, so I try to pay attention. But in the really anxious moments, it's difficult. But when it happens over and over again, you start to notice it so I guess the metaphor that is starting to pop into my mind is, you know, when the moon is not full and you're feeling sober about some plan or some decision, your common sense and your ability to judge risk seems appropriate. Mm-hmm. But then the full moon rises and you become a werewolf and mm-hmm. you're you're almost gone. I feel like at the end of these anxious periods, I look back and I wonder where I was. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not there anymore it's almost like you've become a werewolf, but you have to remember while you're a werewolf not to eat people, you know? <laughs> right, like it requires you almost to like, in those moments when you're feeling really anxious to not sort of trust yourself at all and to, right. to have a history right. to rely on or something.
1: Well, you, that's, I love the fact that you're using the word trust because the, the opposite of um, doubt and uncertainty and worry, is not certainty and having no doubts. It's trust. It's it's trust in yourself, trust that the world will carry on the way it normally does, and trust that your assessment that you're a werewolf right now is accurate, you know, mm-hmm. that you're that you're not thinking straight. So all that stuff about trust your gut, it it doesn't apply here. Um, your gut is not telling you something important and valuable. Your gut is off in la-la land when you're that anxious. And trust your gut is not it. Trust yourself is what is it. Um, and, and to be able to see that, um, you know, that you're in that place where you're not thinking straight. And how would you be if in the years before you were ever scared of that particular thing, the way you did it before, is is how you're going to do it again. Um, that you're not going to suddenly turn into somebody who is uh, um, neglectful or inattentive or dangerous or stupid or anything else. All the worries that you have, um, those are worries. They're not facts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the book is full of um, advice for how exactly to do this. I'll I'll give just one example of how it's ever worked for me. I remember I was having a lot of trouble making a decision. I was in one of these anxious spirals and I was talking to my sister and my sister said something that sort of made me take off the werewolf costume for a second. She said, um, well, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: and Sort of in a moment, a shift took place and, you know, my fangs went back into my face (laughs) and all the the hair retreated. And I was the sober, you know, reasonable person that I am some of the time came out. Um, so
1: that's your wise mind. You know, in the book, we, in all of our books, we have these three characters, a worried voice, a false comfort, and wise mind. And you always have your wise mind. Sometimes it's very hard to find it, but it sounds mm-hmm. like your sister pointed you at your own wise mind and he was right there. And he could tell you what you would say to someone else. That was, that was a wonderful intervention you know it's a little bit David Carbonell had a has a wonderful analogy which uh, I love to use which is that when you're in an anticipatory state and you're fearful um, you it's as if you're sitting in a movie theater watching um uh, a horror movie you know and the the chainsaw murderer is coming towards you and or towards the heroine and you know your heart starts panning, and you're scared and it's really really scary and you're all absorbed in it and you're you know trying to decide whether you can bear it or you have to close your eyes and then somebody in the theater nearby sneezes and then all of a sudden you're like oh i'm in a theater right and you stop being terrified but your heart's still pounding for a while. Mm. Once the alarm goes off, it stays. You know, it takes a while for all that adrenaline to be absorbed. But what what you do in this attitude shift is that you notice that you're watching a movie that you, a movie you made up, mm. and that you don't. You you can step back from it, and you can it, you can't get away from the feeling of it sometimes, or at least for a while but you can see it's a movie.
0: Yeah. How do you recommend people notice the sneezing or step out of it?
1: Well, practice. (laughs) Um, And that's where you get these little glimpses. And I think you got a wonderful one when your sister said that to you because you found your wise mind who was able to say, um, you know, how would you look at it if if you weren't all absorbed in it? Mm -hmm. How would you look at it? And it's a matter of practicing and getting these little moments where you step back into the present moment, you take a look, you see what mistakes you're doing, you see where the anticipatory anxiety is coming from. It's not always your imagination. Sometimes it's things like mood, where you say if you're depressed, you might have a lot of anticipatory anxiety coming from your mood when you you kind of know that you're not really up to par, that you're not as much fun or that you're not as competent as you usually are because you're depressed and it's a realistic response to a mood, then you have to be able to say, okay, this is realistic response to a depressed mood. And I'm going to do everything I can to deal with my depression. Mm. But, but by standing back, you can at least um, assess what's needed here. Sometimes it's just a reorientation to the present. Sometimes it's, putting things in a box where you know know that the thing is coming and there's not much you can do about it, but you don't keep reopening the box to check on it. Yes, it's going to be scary, but you don't have to, you know, constantly be in that space. You can put it on the side and pay attention to what is directly in front of you and, and go have lunch because the thing you're scared about is three weeks from now.
0: Yep. That sounds right. Um, I suppose the the issues I've had in trying to implement sort of CBT-based approaches as interventions into my own habits and patterns of anxiety is it often doesn't feel like I have as much agency as is being asked of me. Like, the idea that I can put things down or step away from things, or that even it's me who's doing the imaginings. It Mm -hmm. feels a lot more like I am maybe the bathroom attendant of a very chaotic, you know, nursery and lots of insane things are happening constantly. And I guess sometimes it just feels like a big ask for me to tell all the screaming children to just, Hey guys.
1: No, you can't. That's exact. That's white knuckling. That's, that is why. Well, the word CBT in the title. Here's a secret. That is a keyword uh, for searches, and the oh, okay. publisher insists on using CBT in the title. Ah. This is not standard CBT. We argue about this every every time, but we have to have it because that's what the publisher wants so people can find the book. Hmm. But CBT often is taught as a series of techniques to apply to make the thing that you want to get rid of go away. And that doesn't work. If your attitude is, well, I'll do this thing, and then I'll check back to see if it made the thing that's making me uncomfortable go away. That's really not going to help. Um, the, the attitude of acceptance, which is more like the kids are going to be screaming, and maybe they're going to be screaming like um, the sky is falling, And I can't help hearing the kids screaming that the sky is falling, but I'm not going in there to try and shut them up over and over again. That ain't going to work. What I am going to do is know that the screaming kids are not telling the truth. Hmm. And I can just stand here and let them scream. They're not killing each other. They're just screaming. And let some time pass, and by the end of the day, I can go home. And the the idea is to shift your attitude towards what's going on, not to stop it. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to get rid of anticipatory anxiety, you're already on the wrong foot.
0: Yeah, and I know this is a a silly question, but what if it's very painful?
1: Uh, It it becomes less painful the less you buy into it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's a process of practicing this shift of the willingness to have a part of your mind be nuts. Mm. And not to feel like you have to do anything about it. Um, you know, let's say you're, you know, you have you're in your home, and you're, um, you're, you wake up the next morning, and there's bizarre thing has happened, there's a, a new room in your house. And, and, that room has a, a, a full, a, a massive screen TV in it and nothing else. And the TV is against the wall and it's on and there's no remote and there's no buttons and there's no plug and you can't get rid of it. And it's just there. And it's on the anticipatory anxiety channel and it's playing one movie after another of terrible catastrophic things that could happen. And it's really loud and it's, and you get scared. And you, you you run in and out of the room, trying to find the remote, looking all around, trying to unplug it. Then you give up on unplugging it, but you just keep hoping and hoping and hoping it'll be gone. And so you keep checking on it. And every time you go in there, yes, damn it, it's still on. So what is your choice? Your choice is to have this crazy room in your house Go do the dishes. Sometimes you can hear it. Sometimes it's sort of muffled. Sometimes it's louder. But you can do the dishes and go about your day. If you don't keep checking on it and you don't keep fretting about it and you don't keep wishing that it would go away, there's going to be a day when you wake up and the room is gone. But it's not up to you.
0: Yeah. I. But I would add, I would also say, that the fretting is not up to you. And maybe we would disagree about that. I'm not sure.
1: Um, the fretting is the wishing it would go away. The, the wishing is also something that, believe it or not, is actually a choice. You, it feels like you can't help fretting. It feels like your ruminations about it are, are involuntary, but they're actually voluntary. You know, and you can decide that you're not going to wish about it or even work on it. It's kind of like, here's an example. This is from the work of Michael Greenberg or sort of, sort of. I borrow things from everybody. Um, What happens to you if I say, what is two plus three? I do the math. Instant problem solving, right? Uh And what happens if I say, okay, now what is 276 times 322? I don't know, right, so you give up immediately, uh-huh, and you don't even try to solve the problem, right. It's an unsolvable problem. You just have to let it be there,
0: uh-huh.
1: and it will do its own thing, and eventually it'll subside. It is fed by the fretting over it.
0: yeah, so <laughs> and we don't we don't have to have a back and forth the whole time, but since I have you, I want to press you on this. <laughs> So I think it is an option, but I'm not sure everyone knows it's an option. Right. So maybe about two or three months ago, and I've been doing um, internal family systems therapy. And after some number of sessions, I was able to identify the part that frets as not being me. And then a couple days later, when he started fretting, I was able to say, hey, what are you doing? Like, or whatever it is you're fretting about, go ahead and fret and let me know what you come up with. I'm going to be over here.
1: Uh, Right. So there's a very important cue in there, right? Which is that you didn't say get out of me you fretting part, go away. You said, I understand you, I'm gonna put my arm around you, go ahead and fret, it's okay with me, but I'm not going to pay attention, I'm not gonna work on it with you, I'm not gonna buy that everything you have to say, you're only three anyway, I, I'm the grown up here. So right. so what? the important piece of that was your attitude shift. You weren't saying go away, damn fretting part. Mm-hmm you were saying, okay, you're here. And that's the attitude shift that I'm talking about, just doing it from a different perspective.
0: Totally, totally. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it works, but I, I will say that it took me years, years to realize that it wasn't me.
1: Well, it's a part of you. Yeah, well. But it doesn't have yeah. to run the show. Uh-huh. It's on the in the, in the act metaphor, it's on the bus. But you're the
0: driver. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, What else? So I know that um, two of the things that in the book you write really fuel this um, third layer of fear. One is the oscillation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you describe that as kind of like worries followed by worries or more like maybe worries followed by maybe false comfort. Mm -hmm. So like you have a worry like, oh no, at the camping trip, I'm going to get bit by like a, a tick and get Lyme disease. And then the false comfort will say something like, oh, that's so unlikely. You're not going to. And so anxiety will dip for a second, but then a worry thought will be like, well, but maybe it will happen. People get Lyme disease all the time. And yeah. so is that that's one of the
1: right that that interaction between your attempt to make your anxiety go away is like your attempt to kick out your fretting part mm-hmm. and 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 that oscillation between the what if and the and the what is false comfort all kinds of ways of trying to get to argue with you that argument itself raises anxiety it doesn't it doesn't help at all but it has the it has the illusion of helping because every time you come up with an argument, seems like that ought to work. And it does for a moment.
0: Mm-hmm. But the anxiety is like the most decorated, experienced mm-hmm. lawyer, right? It always has something, some It rejoinder. always
1: has something, the yes, but what if this will come right back? And that's why classic CBT, which is, re, you know, replace irrational thoughts with rational thoughts, doesn't really work very well, because mm-hmm. when you do that, then the, the worried voice just comes right back. And then you get very angry at yourself because somehow you feel like you're not doing it right. Or why can't you just listen to, to your rational part and your rational part and your irrational part, that argument, that struggle is what's feeding your anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So that was one of the contributors. And I think you also mentioned that the pattern of avoidance
1: is mm-hmm. also
0: something that begets more avoidance,
1: right? That's by the principle of negative reinforcement. So it, it works perfectly to avoid you get an instant decrease in anxiety. But that is a reinforcer just like a candy is a reinforcer or some, you know, big prize is a reinforcer. And it reinforces what what just went before, which is the anxiety. And that's the phone I should have turned off before we started the podcast. So we no can problem. just have some music in the background.
0: Free music. <laughs> so how did we wind up or how did I or how did so many of us wind up in these unhappy positions with these positive feedback loops and these cycles that just feed on themselves?
1: Well, we, we talk about uh, the predispositions that people have to be anxious and there, some of those predispositions are biological. So people are born with a tendency to have what we call a sticky mind, mm-hmm. um, which is that tendency for things to go round and round in loops and for it to be hard for things to just pass through and out and be hard to have an easy time putting something in a box, mm-hmm. Right. So that predisposition is actually biologically inherited. It runs in families. It doesn't mean you inevitably have to be that way, but it is a biological predisposition. So that's one piece of it. Another thing that we t- that people who are anxious tend to inherit is a trait, and that trait is called anxiety sensitivity, mm. which is the, the reactivity to anxiety. In other words, being afraid of a rapid heartbeat or being scared of having a thought that you don't want to have or having um, a reaction to normal levels of arousal that then you get scared of and add meaning to and worry about and try to get rid of got an inherited component. It's, it's also something, of course, you can, you can learn. And as you're raised that way, but most people who are anxious are raised by somebody who was anxious. And so you get it both genetically and in, in what you learn about how to handle feelings, thoughts, images, experiences. And so they, it, 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 it come, you come by it honestly. It's nothing to be ashamed of. But it is in your lap to learn different ways of of um, relating to the anxiety that you might feel.
0: How long would you say it takes a person to take this on and become, I don't know if the right word is healed, but to really make this attitudinal shift and and face their life's adversity and anxiousness in like a new way?
1: Oh, I can't answer that question. It's very different for every person,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it depends on you know how chaotic or stressful a person's life is. It depends on um, what kind of help they're getting. It depends on. Um, sort of whether they grasp the concepts. Um, It depends on whether or not there's trauma in the background. There's so many different factors that I couldn't make a general thing. Every once in a while, somebody will encounter the book and all by itself, the book or a couple of therapy sessions or some other new insight, they can take off and run with that. And that's all they need. And they. They can heal quickly. I don't. Mm. I don't like the word healing either, um, but uh, you know there are other people for whom it's a it's a project that goes on for many many years, or it comes and it goes. Mm. We call anxiety a, a chronic but intermittent problem. So it's worse sometimes. It's better sometimes, depending on what's going on in your life, your age, your developmental tasks, and all the other things that can affect your level of stress at any given time but I can't give an answer for it that would would satisfy me. Uh, I can't give a generalization.
0: Sure, but you have seen it happen.
1: Oh, uh, uh, that people have sort of life-changing experiences when they have an insight.
0: Yeah, and, and that their attitude towards the anxious yeah. feelings they get have become more about welcoming them and allowing them in. And
1: Yes, yes, we do see it. But again, you get it in little glimpses, and then you – you go, oh, that's what she was talking about. And the minute that you go, now, what is it exactly I did there? It's gone because now you're grabbing for it and you're working at it instead of allowing it to happen. So getting, getting this attitude is, is a passive process. It's an allowing and accepting process. It's not a thing you do. So you get it in little bits of insight And along the way, then they add together. And eventually, that's mostly how you are, except when you forget. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just as your your sister's comment to you was a profound shift for you. And that's with you, and you're not going to forget it. But there will be times that you momentarily forget it, of course.
0: For sure. Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time talking about sort of the, the beginnings of it and sort of this attitudinal shift. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time today. What, what haven't I asked you that you think readers should know?
1: Well, let me see. We didn't talk much about um, chronic indecisiveness, the mm. problem uh, making decisions. I don't mean the occasional problem making a decision, but I mean a lifestyle in which you're postponing, you're doing research all the time, but never actually buy anything. <laughs> Um, people are mad at you all the time because you won't commit to stuff, uh, troublemaking and, and committing to decisions. And, um, you know, we do go into that in some detail in the book. It's behind it is, uh, three different things. And, and I can just mention them. One of them is, um, uh, a fear of regret, um, and a very strong imaginal process in which you, you. You, you think about one side of the decision and then you make a story in your head that says to you that you would regret it if you made the wrong choice and then you are frozen and you can't do anything. Um, another is perfectionism, where you can't make a good enough choice. You have to make the perfect choice and that will, will hang you up as well. Um, And on the third is being unable to deal with um, the process of doubting or um, um, not knowing for sure um, that you did make the right choice. Um, Then going through, when you make any choice, of course, all the things you didn't choose suddenly seem more attractive. Mm. And you have to be able to be willing to have some doubts and proceed anyway because you can't be absolutely certain what the right choice is um, you have to be sure enough. You have to trust yourself. You have to be willing to proceed. And you have to be willing to uh, deal with the fact that maybe somebody else is going to get a better deal on that car. Or maybe that's, you know, in two years, you'll wish you had bought another car. So that the perfectionism, the uncertainty, um, and the um, and the fear of regret really are behind a lot of um lifestyles of avoidance which is really what chronic indecisiveness is
0: and is the antidote to that similar to what we were talking about before the dancing yeah
1: Yeah, very much yeah
0: great well thanks so much for your time today uh i'm sure we could talk for hours but yeah i appreciate you You coming on the podcast again and i definitely recommend readers to pick up this this book um which for better or worse can sometimes feel like it's written about you
1: (laughs) Well, that was the point, and I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me.